On February 12th, 2015, a group called the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria released a report that they had kidnapped 21 Egyptian Coptic Christians. Seven days later, ISIS revealed a video that they had murdered all 21 of their victims by beheading them. After these beheadings, ISIS released the names of their victims. However, only 20 names were released, and it wasn't until later that the 21st victim was named. And there were many questions about this 21st victim. Was he in fact a Coptic Christian like the other 20 prisoners, or was he just in the wrong place at the wrong time? Some sources say that he was a Christian. Other sources, however, state that he was not originally Christian, but that it was actually during these seven days of watching the faith of the other 20 prisoners that when ISIS asked him, do you reject Jesus? He responded, their God is my God. Knowing for certain that his answer would lead to his death. Their God is my God. This is the type of community we've been talking about over the last several weeks. This is the type of community that Jesus is building. As we saw last week, Jesus has commanded his disciples to live out their lives and their chief and most basic character is to love as Christ has loved them. After Jesus was go going to leave, he wanted this new community to be based on the character of himself. Someone who would give his life. And as John tells us in his first epistle, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love God does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest for us that God sent his only son into the world, that we might live through him. Jesus, in fact, has told his disciples that this is the type of life he has chosen them for. He has chosen them to build upon this foundation of unmerited, sacrificial, unconditional love. Everything that is permeates from a disciple's life is to permeate this Jesus love. And what we see in this passage this morning is what that will cost the disciples. What we'll see this morning is that Jesus, as he's unveiling the eternal plan of God's redemption through his blood on the cross, through his glorious and victorious resurrection, 
is that although the war has been won, there will be battles. Jesus is teaching his disciples, there will be cosmic opposition that you will face. This morning, Jesus shares with his followers what that will look like. That the world that they've been born into, the world that they interact with, will hate them. Because the world hated him. And this is a message that we, especially as a church in America, we've tried to avoid this at all costs. This message that we have to be separated from the world that we live in, which involves suffering and pain. And as many Christians face all over the actual world, death. But what Jesus is telling his disciples, what he's ensuring that his disciples know, is that they know that the world hated them because the world hated him first. And what I want to ask ourselves this morning is twofold. First, are we prepared? Are we prepared for the world to hate us? And second, how are we going to respond? How will we respond to the world that hates us? Before we begin, let us pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask that you reveal yourself to us this morning. Lord, there is nothing that I can say this morning that will change a heart, that will open a blind eye. But we rest solely and completely upon your grace, upon the love that you have shown us. Father, reveal yourself to us this morning. Through your word, nourish our souls and give us hope. Lord, we lift up those in our congregation that are suffering. Lord, we lift up Jonathan Pence and John Michael and Cynthia Jaqua and Peggy Bauer and Penny Gardner and Mary Elizabeth. Lord, and in the same breath, we rejoice for the Stingle family. Lord, may you bless this church. May you bless our, all of our different activities, all of our different things that we do throughout the fall. But Lord, may all of those things be centered on your people loving each other and loving the word that you have provided for us in Christ. We pray for the community that you've placed us in. We pray for our governor. 
We pray for our president and vice president. We pray for our Supreme Court justices and congressmen and congresswomen and senators. Lord, we believe that you are in control of all things. And we ask, we ask this morning that just as the rain is falling outside, that your grace will fall on your creation. And Lord, we pray as you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This past week, our refrigerator stopped working. So I got in touch with someone who said that he would come and repair it. And a man came to our house, and of course I, I, I tried to help, but I was probably more of a nuisance than anything. I stood there, and I was not helpful. <laughs> And we got to talking, and of course, the conversation turned, and he asked me what I did, and I told him, I I'm a pastor. He stopped what he was doing, he looked me in the eye, and he said, I hope you teach the Bible, because that's what our culture needs, because our culture is worse than ever. How many of you have heard that said? How many of you have said those words? Our culture is worse now than it has ever been. Because we can look at our nation and we can see that our church, the church, is losing members. We can see that the younger generations know less and less about the Bible, care less and less about God. They are deconstructing the basic tenets of the gospel. And the American church has lost less and less influence than it has ever had before. And not only that, but the church has been the focal point of ridicule and suspicion and even hatred. But my next question for you is this. Is this what Scripture teaches does Scripture give us a lens to understand why we live in a culture that we live in? Because this is what our text says this morning. 2,000 years ago, Jesus told his disciples this, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they keep my word, they will also keep yours. Sinclair Ferguson says this if at the beginning of verse 18 does not mean a maybe this will happen. But it means, since you will be hated, as I'm sure 
Miss Mary Vanderpool will correct me if I'm wrong. Most grammarians call this a first-class conditional clause. This is a, the world is going to hate you because the world hated me first. That's why he says they hate them. Because they hated Jesus first. And, this, and he explains why they hated him in verses 22 and 24. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of their sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. And then verse 24, if I had not done any among done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of their sin. But now they have seen and have hated both me and the Father. Now, what I and every commentator that I read this week want you to hear, what that does not mean is that if Jesus had not spoken to them or done great works, that they would not be guilty of their sin. For James tells us, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point is guilty of all of it. But what this does mean is that the world will not like us. But in fact, the world will hate us. Because the world doesn't like a message that's exclusive. And that's what the message of the gospel is. It's exclusive. And now some of you might say, pause, wait a second. You, you, you can look at our bulletin. You can look at Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30. Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. And you're right. Jesus says, come to me, everyone, whether you're drunkard or sober, whether you're a prostitute or you're chaste until marriage, whether you're gay or straight, a pedophile or protect children, a murderer or one who stands for life, whether you're a racist, a swindler, a gossip, a liar, the gospel message is, come to me all. Come to Christ. He loves you. He has given himself up for you. No matter what you have done in your past, the blood of Jesus has covered and atoned for your sins. But that's not all the gospel offers. That's how we are invited. That's how it begins. But that is not where it ends because the gospel also calls us to repent of our sin. To turn away from the way we are headed in our sin that leads to death and turn and run to Jesus. The gospel is a message about picking up our, Christ, our cross as Christ did, and following his footsteps, loving as he has loved us. The gospel message is that of all who have sinned have found a new identity in Christ. We have been crucified with Christ. We no longer live, but Christ lives inside of us. Because what our world wants to tell us is, we're not that bad. We don't have to change. If God really was a God of love, God would love me for who I am. And what the gospel says is God does love you 
but not for who you are. God loves you because of who Christ is and what he has done for you. We are new creations in Christ. Our identity is rooted. It's abiding in the vine, not in ourselves. The gospel isn't a message of an unending self-progression or self-maintenance. The gospel isn't about come as you are and stay as you are. The gospel isn't a message of love me for who I am. The gospel message is that without the righteousness of Christ, I have no hope of salvation. Therefore, we must be born again into a new life. The gospel is good news because the power of God through the Holy Spirit who brought Jesus from the dead has also brought us out of the dead of our trespasses and sins. All are welcome. But once you find your new identity in Christ, the drunkard can no longer stay a drunkard. The prostitute cannot stay a prostitute. A murderer can no longer stay a murderer. For everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that a murderer does not have eternal life in Jesus. The exclusivity of the Christian faith is this. Are you abiding in Christ? We see an example of this in John chapter 6. Jesus feeds the 5,000. And Jesus said to them, you are not seeking me because you saw signs, because you ha- but because you ate your full of loaves. They came to him for the wrong reason, and then he taught them about eternal life. He told them, no one can come to the Father. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent them draws him and raises him up on the last, dot, on the last day. And guess what happened? Many of his disciples left. Because they didn't like the message of the gospel. The disciples know that because of what Christ has done for them, they are being chosen. They are being called into this new community. We love as we have been loved. We give ourselves because he gave himself. And the question I have for us this morning, are we prepared to be hated for that message? Because that's the message of the gospel. Jesus said, his first public sermon, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Run to Jesus. Leave your old selves behind and be clothed in the newness of life that is only found in Jesus. Jesus gives them a second reason of why why they will be hated. In verse 21 and 23, 
But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they did not know him who sent me. Whoever hates me hates my father also. They hate us because they hate Jesus. They hate Jesus because they did not know the Father. This is when Reverend William Still tells us we need to see beyond the hatred of men. We need to see the source of this hatred. And the source doesn't occur in the passage before us, but in the chapters surrounding us. He knew who the source of this hatred was. Jesus is revealing to his disciples, not only will the world, the people of the world, hate you, but there's a deep-seated truth of why they hate you. Jesus says it three, Jesus gives them a name three times in the Gospel of John, the ruler of this world. We saw him behind the action of Judas in chapter 13. We actually saw him enter Judas in verse 27 of chapter 13, the devil, Satan himself. This is the cosmic opposition to the kingdom of God. Are we prepared for this type of opposition? Supernatural, deep-seated opposition. And we're used to stories of opposition. They've become part, part, of, part of what we like to watch, part of what we like to experience, whether it's the Avengers or Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or Narnia or Harry Potter or Katniss Everdeen or Tennessee versus Florida or Ole Miss versus Mississippi State. There's a good guy and there's a bad guy. I'll let you figure out which one of those last few are actually good ones or bad ones. But this is deep-seated within us. From the very beginning, from the rebellion of the garden, when God cursed the serpent, he told Adam and Eve and the serpent there would be a cosmic battle between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. From the very beginning, we see the lines of these two seeds. Cain versus Abel. Ishmael versus Isaac, Esau versus Jacob, Moses versus Pharaoh, David versus Goliath, Israel versus Babylon, even King Herod versus the unborn males that were in Jerusalem. We see on every page of this book, this cosmic opposition of the seed of the serpent trying to destroy the seed of the woman. But this is why Christ came to crush the head of the serpent, to undo everything that he has done, to renew all that he has destroyed. Because what Jesus is telling them is that after three days, I will crush the head of the serpent. I will be victorious over him. But he will still wreak havoc until I come again. Because of the prince of this world, there will be those who fight on their behalf, on his behalf. And they're so dead in their sins 
They are so blinded by his evil that they can actually do nothing else. They can only serve the king that they know because their evil desires have so overtaken themselves they can't do anything else. That's what was true in verse 2 of chapter 16. Jesus promised, promised his disciples, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. We can read this and we know that this happens. We've read the Acts of the Apostles. Saul persecuted the church in the name of God. ISIS beheaded 21 prisoners in the name of their God. But do you get what's going on? Those people are so blinded by their sins, they can't even see which direction is up. The Pharisees killed Jesus because they thought they were serving God. But they were serving their king. Are you prepared to be hated because you no longer serve their king? The world hates you because you do not serve the seed of the serpent. And if you are not prepared for this hatred, then you don't know what Jesus has called you to. You don't know and don't understand the type of community that Jesus is trying to create. You don't understand the Christian life. Because this is what Jesus is telling his disciples. This is the life I'm calling you to. Are you prepared? And my second point, which is much shorter than my first point, How are we to respond? If you notice in our call to worship, it was, it was a little different this week than, than a normal week. It's from Psalm chapter 69. And this is typically defined as an imprecatory psalm. And an imprecatory psalm is a cry or a petition of God's people to their king that he might bring righteous judgment upon his enemies. It's a psalm that calls for God to act according to his nature and justice and righteousness, to act on behalf of his people that he has sworn to protect, to bring just judgment against the evil one's wicked actions. And most of us, I hope, struggle to pray these type of prayers. Because in light of the, new of the New Testament, because the gospel of Jesus, we should always first see people as people created in the image of God. And we should always pray for those who persecute us. And we should say the same thing that Jesus said upon the cross. They do not know what they do. Father, please reveal yourself to them. 
those who persecute you, those who hate your bride. And we can see the type of fruit from this prayer as we, you can look in Acts chapter 9. Saul has the scales of his eyes removed and he sees Jesus as his king. But our prayer should also be, but if they do not, if they do not recognize you as king, Father, we ask that you act justly. We are asking you to work according to your nature, not out of our hatred towards those who are blind, but against the evil one who stands behind them. We ask that you stand for us, not because of our righteousness, but because of the righteousness of your Son, who gave himself for all of creation. And if, the, if there are those who act wickedly against us, we are to do the same thing that Jesus did. We do not respond with hatred but we run to our Father. When we pray an imprecatory psalm, we are asking God to crush Satan and his minions. We are asking God to preserve our life because we have no hope outside of him. Now here's what this doesn't look like. Father, bring judgment upon those who disagree with me or who don't act like me or who don't look like me or who are in my way or even those who don't vote like I do. There's a difference between those who hate us because we are disciples of Jesus and there's a difference between those who are just different from us. And this is hard. This takes wisdom. It takes knowing God's word. It takes patience. But above all, this takes love. Because remember, the serpent is the craftiest of all the animals. The serpent doesn't want to be seen. The serpent wants to lurk in the darkness. Because this is what happens. Not only does the world try to hate us, but we see the serpent get amongst us ourselves. We see the serpent try to bring disunity and hatred among us, as we see in Acts 5. And what I think is what the, one of the most difficult things to see in our country now is who is God's enemy. Because now we have churches proclaiming, come as you are and stay as you are. We have churches who say, you cannot exclude someone from the Lord's Supper, no matter what they did throughout the week. And we have to ask ourselves, how are we to deal with that? That's hard. I'm telling you, it's hard. But do we do it based on love as we have been loved? 
Do we run to our Father and say, Father, they do not know what they are doing. Save them. But at the same time, we are asking God to act according to his promises and judge their sin. Because this is what Jesus has done upon the cross. He was judged for our sin. And if they do not believe in Jesus, if we do not believe in Jesus and his word, that he is the supreme revelation of God for us to remove our sins, without Jesus, we have no hope. Are you prepared? How are you going to react? I'll be honest with you, this is really hard in the South because everyone's a Christian. Everyone, almost everyone, goes to church. And because Satan likes to live in the darkness, these lines between living of the world or living in the church are really blurred. It's really hard to know when we're living of the world and when we're living for Jesus. But we have to admit, there is opposition. This passage is warning us of this true reality. It's going to be hard. But this is where this passage ends. Not literally. But these are the words that Jesus says. Look at verse 28, uh, 26 of chapter 15. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. And then listen to verse 1. I have said these things to keep you from falling away. Know who you are in Christ. God the Trinity, God the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has given you everything you need to withstand this battle of hatred. But this is the biggest fear. This is the warning that Jesus is giving his disciples. Do not fall away. Do not go back to your old master because your old master will lead you to death. Follow me, for I am the good king who leads to life, who has given himself for you. Know that the world isn't the worst it's ever been. It just has a different face now. But the seed of the serpent is trying to take down all that he can because the war is over. Know that there will be opposition to anyone who stands for Christ in his kingdom. But know that they are not to be feared. They are to be pitied. Because as Jesus said when he rose from the grave, all authority in heaven and on earth belong to me.
church, do not fear, as we read a very long assurance of pardon. For there is neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things of th- to come, nor powers, nor heights, or death, nor anything in all of creation that will separate us from the love of God and Jesus Christ. If you want to be loved by the world, you are going back to your old king. It's going to be hard. It might get harder. It might also lead to death. But for us, death is not the final word. For those who are in Christ Jesus, we will be raised. Even if the world hates us to that point, we have the war cry, O death, where is your sting? For the evil one will be crushed finally and victoriously when Jesus comes again. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. He has loved us to the end. Amen. Please turn in your Trinity hymnal.